From uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. This is Alyssa Carroll, and I am your host and the creator of at serial underscore killing on Instagram, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous vile and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast will be on Israel Keys. Now, Israel is a very interesting case. I am so excited to get into this story with you guys. This podcast will probably sound a little different because researching Israel was not easy. There isn't much about his very early years other than the tidbits here and there. The superficial stuff, you know, that any website has regurgitated from every other website. I had known about him previously and I did do a whole chapter on him on Instagram, but I wanted to get into his childhood to see if there might be some reason because it's really hard to determine based on the information that's readily available. I've always been very curious about Israel because he and I were quite frankly from the same generation. He's not a serial killer who murdered during the 70s, which is what we hear most about. He grew up around the same time I did. So I really wanted to know the entire story. So I read the book Devil in the Darkness by J.T. Hunter and it was quite eye-opening. It hit me on a very personal level. The author does get into some pretty graphic detail about Israel's final victim, so I do want to caution you there. But it was an excellent book and a very easy read, so I recommend it. But let's just jump right into the story. Israel Keys was born on January 7, 1978, making him a Capricorn in Richmond, Utah. Now, since Israel was born in the late, late 70s, we'll talk about the history around the time of the very early 80s. Most people look back quite fondly on this decade. The 80s were a great time for young people and kids due to serious advances in technology. People were able to buy personal computers, which were big, bulky machines, to say the least. I had a Tandy 1000. The monitor screen was rounded, and the whole thing was like a smaller television, except the screen was usually black with green lettering. We also had Atari game consoles, which I personally remember having as a little kid, and it was awesome. We were starting to be able to have the first home video gaming systems. Games like Frogger, Pong, Asteroids, Space Invaders, Pitfall, which was one of my favorites, and the worst Atari game ever, E.T. I logged so many hours trying to time that alien's movements just so. You know it was awful, just admit it. CDs were put on the market, making finding your favorite song on an album nearly instant, rather than having to fast-forward or rewind your cassette tapes. 
Our music also became a lot more portable with Walkmans hitting the market. So we could put our headphones on, clip our Walkman to our waistband and roller skate down the sidewalk. VCRs had been around since the late 70s and now most people had one in their home. This meant a whole new business for the entertainment industry and they began mass producing movies for home viewing. And with that demand came video rental stores like Blockbuster, Movie Gallery, Hollywood Video, Family Video, and so on. But you'd better have brought your movie back on time because those late fees were horrible. Camcorders made making home movies much more convenient compared to 8mm film and projectors and screens, you know. Most of us that are of an age remember our parents or grandparents having that camcorder in our faces at every birthday party or day at the zoo. Filming our lives as we grew from infants to adults was easier than ever. Now let's talk about cable television. Some of the more middle to upper middle class households and above could actually afford cable television. By the end of the 70s, nearly 16 million households had a cable box on top of their TV. With this came so many more channels. I mean, we saw the birth of MTV. I mean, I don't really remember the birth of MTV, but I remember very early MTV. And this was back when it was actually a nearly constant stream of music videos. Heaven forbid. We also saw channels that you had to pay a little more for, such as HBO, Showtime, and Naughty Naughty Cinemax. It was also the golden age of primetime television. We had shows like Dallas, Dynasty, Cheers, Family Ties, The Cosby Show, Mork and Mindy, Knight Rider, and one of my personal favorites from back then, V. We saw the rise of daytime talk shows like Oprah, Geraldo Rivera, Phil Donahue, and at night, David Letterman was king. Some of the all-time favorite cast members of Saturday Night Live were also active. I mean, needless to say, we were not hurting for entertainment. People in the late 70s and the early 80s had the big hair and wore blazers, animal print, leotards, leg warmers, sweatbands, leather, high top Reeboks, which I had, swatch watches. There are also a lot of famous people that were born in 1978 along with Israel, such as Ashton Kutcher, Michelle Rodriguez, Kobe Bryant, John Legend, Rachel McAdams, Jensen Ackles, and James Franco. But the 80s weren't all roses and sunshine. Big multinational corporations began moving their manufacturing overseas, mostly to Thailand, Mexico, South Korea, Taiwan, China, Japan, Germany. Also, the world population was growing at an exponential rate. China was one of the biggest population boom countries and with ultrasound technology allowing people to find out the gender of their baby before it was born, there was a sharp increase in gender selective abortions because male babies were preferred. The Cold War was still very much a thing, but the end of it would not be far. The Middle East was constantly at war. Iraq was accused of using illegal chemical weapons to kill Iranian troops. 
Drugs were becoming such a problem that the First Lady Nancy Reagan began a campaign for children called Just Say No. People were entering rehabs with serious addictions to crack cocaine and heroin and with the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s came a quickly spreading virus, HIV, which developed into AIDS. Thankfully, once people fully understood how it was transmitted, safer sex practices began. But for the most part, the late 70s and early 80s were still a time of decadence. And perhaps because of that decadence, maybe that could explain why Israel's parents were the way that they were. So Israel Keys was born the second of 10 children in a then fundamentalist Mormon household in Richmond, Utah, which is about 100 miles northeast of Salt Lake City. His parents were John and Heidi Keys. John worked as a maintenance man and was described as hardworking, as well as strict, but not to the point of abuse. He and his wife Heidi, who was a third-generation American whose family was from Sweden, they had married three years before Israel was born. The couple named all of their children based on biblical or godly or nature themes. For example, Israel, Sunshine, Autumn Rose, Charity, Hosanna, and so on. Israel was their first son born, and it's a bit foretelling that, of a couple of meanings, his name means, quote, he who struggles with God. While Israel was still very young, John and Heidi moved the family from Utah to Colville, Washington, which was another small town. They lived in a small remote cabin with no electricity. Their only source of heat was a small indoor wood stove. Due to mostly his mother's intense and often changing religious beliefs, he and his siblings were homeschooled. Also during this time, Heidi had the family begin to attend a church near the Canadian border called The Ark. Now that doesn't sound that bad, but just wait till you hear this. Now, The Ark is now known as Our Place Fellowship and it has a crazy history. According to an article written by Jim Camden for thespokesman.com, the Ark is part of a very small and thankfully disappearing offshoot of Christianity known as British Israelism, which is also known as Anglo-Israelism. It is a cult archeological movement arising in England that believes the people of the British Isles were quote, genetically, racially and linguistically the direct descendants of the 10 lost tribes of ancient Israel, unquote. It was sort of born from writings by a 19th century author named John Wilson, who wrote, quote, our Israelitish origin in 1840. But those writings were not actually the first. They were interpreted from a Frenchman's writing published in 1590 saying, quote, Anglo-Saxon, Celtic, Scandinavian, Germanic, and associated cultures were direct descendants of the ancient Israelites. This means that they are the true chosen people of the Bible and not the Jews. The movement says that the Jews stole the claim of being the chosen people as part of a conspiracy to oppress and cheat Gentiles. 
The movement didn't really have a central structure, but we do know it made its way over to the United States in the 1870s. But between 1899 and 1902, people belonging to this religious movement in the UK decided to excavate parts of the Hill of Terra in Ireland, believing that the Ark of the Covenant was buried there, and they did a lot of damage to one of Ireland's most ancient royal and archaeological sites. They even began preaching that the Pyramid of Khufu contained prophecy about the British people. So this group created the British Israel World Federation, or the BIWF, which actually still exists today. The offshoot of this, located in Washington, as I previously said, is now called Our Place Fellowship, and was then led by an elderly man named Pastor Dan Henry. He preached that white people are the superior chosen race and that the stories in the Bible are their stories. He also preached that Jews are biologically descended from Lucifer himself. And as a disclaimer, I find it mind-boggling that the Jews were and are still so persecuted. I personally do not agree with anything anti-Semitic whatsoever. I find it ridiculous, horrifying, and quite frankly, repugnant. But this was the environment that young Israel Keys was at least exposed to, so I thought it was important to share, and thankfully, he never displayed any racial discrimination later in his life. So also at this time, the family's closest neighbors were another famous family, the Kehos. More importantly, Chevy and Shane. Now this family has a story. The parents of Chevy and Shane were Kirby and Gloria Kehoe, and they named Chevy the oldest of eight sons after Kirby's favorite automobile, a Chevy. Chevy's father had been in the Navy during the Vietnam War. When he and his siblings got a bit older, their parents began homeschooling them. Chevy was raised in an extremely anti-government and white supremacist household. Once Chevy was an older teenager, he began formulating a plan to take down the U.S. government with his own, quote, Aryan People's Republic Militia. He actively recruited at gun show events. He went on to have two wives, stating that polygamy was a way to further the Aryan race. Now, Chevy went on to rob and kidnap a Jewish couple in 1995. The next year, Chevy and an accomplice murdered a family of three and dumped their bodies in a swamp in Arkansas. Then the year after that, Chevy and his brother Shane were in a shootout with the Ohio State Highway Patrol. They managed to escape. Shane got sick of Chevy's ideologies and he left. He split. Chevy eventually surrendered and was arrested in June of 1997. Chevy has also been accused by Shane that he knew about the Oklahoma City bombing, that Chevy and the bomber Timothy McVeigh were together at a motel chatting a few months before the bombing. The motel manager states that the morning of the bombing, Chevy showed up in the office and asked that manager to change the TV to CNN and he appeared giddy. Now, I can't say if this last part is 100% true, but I read it, so I'm just throwing it out there. 
And while Israel and Chevy didn't have a huge connection, I wanted to share this because they were childhood friends for a time. However, while Israel was still quite young, he walked around with a pistol on him at all times. And when he was 14, his grandfather gave him a 38 caliber revolver and Israel went on to make his first homemade silencer. One thing that he did take from his childhood friend and their family and that of the Ark was a distrust of the government. At 14 years old, Israel began to see that he thought differently compared to the other kids. He stated, quote, I've known since I was 14 that there were things that I thought were normal and were okay that no one else seemed to think were normal and okay. So that's when I just started being a loner. I got in trouble a few times around that age. People found out about some of the stuff I did, like my parents and parents of other kids who would hang out with me. They would find out about some stuff that I did, and that's when I just started doing stuff by myself pretty much exclusively, unquote. Now, what he's referring to is... Once he took a cat, he tied it to a tree with a long cord, like a parachute cord. He shot the cat in the stomach, and he watched it run around and around the tree until it ran out of cord and smacked into the tree. The cat then vomited and died. He thought it was funny how frantic the cat was. The friend that was with him was so horrified that he also threw up. That kid then told his dad who told Israel's dad, and that was the last time he took any friends with him out into the woods. This was when he decided to split his personality into what the public deemed acceptable versus his true inner self. Israel had a natural talent for carpentry work and even built his first wood cabin at the age of 16. He moved on to be a general contractor in Colville for two years, starting in 1995 when he was just 17. His work ethic and focus was quite impressive, but Israel's parents decided to move the family to Maine to become maple syrup farmers. The area they moved to was predominantly Amish, and indeed, the family went to an Amish church for a few years, but they never completely joined the Amish community. A friend of the family later stated that Israel's mother was, quote, very creepy and cult-minded. He and his siblings would often sneak away from their parents to go to a friend's house so that they could even watch a movie. The kids were not allowed to play musical instruments because they were against God. But Israel was the golden child of the family and his siblings put him on a pedestal. But not too long after the family got established in Maine, Israel began to change. What prompted it isn't exactly known, but he was done feeling oppressed. He got into it with his parents, and as they verbally fought, Israel announced that he wanted nothing to do with their religious beliefs anymore, that he was atheist. His mother was horrified. She declared him a blasphemer, and he was immediately kicked out of the house and away from the family. His siblings were ordered to have nothing to do with him from that point on. So that's his childhood in a nutshell. Let's analyze that. Now, there are a lot of aspects about his childhood that I'm quite frankly not comfortable even touching. 
There are tons of religious beliefs out there, and I'm of the mind that people are free to believe whatever they want, as long as they aren't hurting anyone else or themselves, and they aren't trying to shove any religion down my throat. With that said, there are studies that exist that talk about children brought up in over-the-top religious parents who are kept away from the general population. A few decades ago, political activists on the far religious right decided they wanted to put together an ideology machine, air quotes, and homeschooling their children was a central theme in that plan, which was to procreate and train an army of religious warriors. According to an article written by Catherine Stewart, as well as the Department of Education, the homeschooling student population has exploded and the growth continues. There are more reasons, aside from religion, that prompts parents to homeschool, but religion is the main one nonetheless. Many of the kids brought up in segregated, strictly religious households where they are not allowed to attend public school with their peers are now old enough to talk about how their life was, and it wasn't very good. 28-year-old Ryan Stoller gave an interview where he spoke about his experience regarding the virtues of an authentically Christian homeschool education. He said, quote, The Christian homeschool subculture isn't a children-first movement. It is, for all intents and purposes, an ideology-first movement. There is a massive, well-oiled machine of ideology that is churning out soldiers for the cultural war. Homeschooling is both the breeding ground, literally when you consider the quiverful concept, and the training ground for this machinery. I say this as someone who was raised in that world, unquote. He states that putting the ideology over the children's well-being and immersion into society causes them to have anxiety, depression, distrust of authority, and severe issues around sexuality. Kids in this extreme environment are taught more about the ideology than, say, true science that has no bias toward Christianity. Children that are isolated from society or their peers are so much more likely to grow up to be psychologically distressed as adults. Studies have shown that extreme versions of social isolation in children affect the neuron-to-neuron -neuron communication in the prefrontal cortex. Now, if you've been with me for a while now, or if you study this sort of thing, you know that issues with the prefrontal cortex is a very serious issue. To simplify things a bit, the prefrontal cortex is responsible for planning, decision-making, problem-solving, self-control, as well as long-term goals that are in the mind. Damage can lead to abnormalities in emotional responses. They can lose some ability to inhibit critical impulses. Now, Israel had a lot of siblings to interact with and play with, so this might not be related to his later crimes, but it is noteworthy to say the least. So as we learned about Israel's upbringing, it is impossible to think his over-the-top religious mother in particular didn't have an underlying agenda while homeschooling her children. And not to give too much away too soon, I will tell you that she never got any better at all and that most, if not all, of his siblings are still very deeply indoctrined. Now I'm not talking regular church-going folk, I'm talking about extremists.
So getting back into his life story, after being banished from his family for proclaiming to be an atheist, he traveled from Maine down to New Jersey and enlisted in the army. He served as a specialist in the Alpha Company, 1st Battalion, 5th Infantry, and was stationed at Fort Lewis near Tacoma, Washington, but he had also been stationed at Fort Hood in Texas, but his training had been in Egypt. He was an excellent soldier, and he received an Army Achievement Medal for meritorious service while assigned as a gunner and assistant gunner in the Alpha Company 60mm mortar section. He also located and neutralized landmines. Imagine that stress. And it was commented that he was quite skilled at keeping his cool in these terrifying situations. It was also interesting to note, though, that as cool and as calm and as focused as he was as a soldier, that a fellow soldier that Israel shared a barrack with stated that though he and Israel did get along, he never dropped his guard around him. He stated that he had said something to Israel that offended him, and Israel replied, quite seriously, I want to kill you. So in other words, Israel Keyes was a trained soldier. He thrived in that environment. These ingredients made him a trained killer. He loved planning and researching. He was described as a man of logistics, strict routine, and most importantly, he knew how to close himself off from the world, to internalize his deepest thoughts. He actually enjoyed that. And in a later interview, he said, quote, There is no one who knows me, or who has ever known me, who knows anything about me, really. They're going to tell you something that is not going to line up with anything I tell you because I'm two different people, basically. And the only person who knows about what I'm telling you, the kind of things I'm telling you, is me, unquote. When they later asked him how long he had been two different people, he snickered and he said, a long time, 14 years. So in 2001, when he was 23 years old, he was pulled over in Washington and arrested for driving under the influence, but he only received one day in jail and a $350 fine. And just before he was honorably discharged, he met Tammy Hawkins. Tammy was nine years older than Israel, being born in 1969. Her father was African American and her mother was Native American, specifically the Macaw tribe. Tammy came from a broken home when she was still quite young. Her father wasn't around much and he had another girlfriend on the side anyway. And Tammy's mother, who was 19 when she had her, eventually went on to be an alcoholic. She endured a lot of racial discrimination due to her lineage on the reservation, which is located in the northwestern top point of Washington state. Also, due to her mother's problems, she and her siblings were in and out of foster care a few times. Saying they were poor is an understatement. They were forced to live in houses that should have been condemned with no indoor plumbing or electricity. When Tammy was 16 years old, she too began drinking and found out quickly that she was addicted. But she joined Alcoholics Anonymous and she moved to Tacoma off of the reservation. So 
She sat down in a diner, I think, and while scanning a newspaper looking for a job, she saw an advertisement for a local chat line for people who were looking for someone to date. She decided to have some fun and give it a try, so she soon heard a message on the chat line from Israel, who was clearly meaning to leave a message for someone else entirely, and she decided to leave him a message telling him that he had done so, and he replied back quickly. He referred to himself as Is, and they had an instant connection. Tammy and Israel began to talk on the phone for hours, and then they eventually agreed to meet at a Mexican restaurant. So at first, she wasn't really physically attracted to him. I mean, he was six foot two, but he was thin and a bit lanky, awkward. She stated that he came across as a nerd. And at first, it was a little awkward, but they quickly fell into their comfortable conversation, already knowing that they had quite a bit in common growing up poor with no electricity and so on. They were nearly inseparable from that meeting on. Their relationship turned sexual very quickly, and they both drank quite a bit together, even though Tammy knew that she had no business doing that. And out of every time they had sex with protection, they didn't one time. So after he had left to go back to work in his army environment, she called him and told him that she had become pregnant. And at first, he asked her to have an abortion. She refused, but she told him, go on with your life and that I will not bother you about the baby. So Tammy effectively moved back to the Macaw Reservation so that she could have her family help her with the coming baby. But he had had time to think about it. And once he was released from the army, he tracked Tammy down and contacted her, stating that he wanted to be with her and he wanted to be a father to the baby, whose name is Sarah, by the way. So she agreed and he moved onto the McCall Reservation with her and settled into a life of domesticity. He got a highly coveted job with the Parks and Recreation Department with the Tribal Authority and he spent the majority of his time in the mountains and densely forested areas of the Olympic Peninsula. Also during this time, Israel began to kill. Who and exactly where? No one knows for sure. We only know that he alluded to the fact that he had killed some people in Washington while he was living there. When he began to fear that the number of people in the vicinity would draw attention, he decided he would kill outside of the state he was residing in at the time. He also hinted to the fact that he had killed someone in New York State and also, as an added bonus, murder wasn't the only thing he did. He also robbed banks. Now did he need the money? No. Because once he got out of the army, he made enough to support himself and his girlfriend and his daughter. He went on to be a general contractor and made excellent money. He said it was never for the money, really. It was for the adrenaline rush. But Israel was an excellent father. Due to his need for order and schedule, he made for nearly the perfect parent. He was up early, at the same time every morning. He would make breakfast for their daughter, clean her up, get her dressed, and he took her to daycare and then later to school before work. In the evenings, he cooked his daughter dinner, spent time with her, and got her ready for bed. Tammy, on the other hand, was not faring so well. 
She had had to have a hysterectomy and she was prescribed pain pills. Then not too long after, she was in a car accident and was prescribed more pain pills and you guessed it, she became deeply addicted. She and Israel began to grow apart due to her addiction even though he drank quite a bit himself and he began sleeping on the couch. Then one day in 2007, he announced that he had another girlfriend and due to her moving to Anchorage, Alaska, he was taking their daughter and moving there as well. Now there was a custody battle, but ultimately Israel had Sarah most of the time. Once settled up there, he opened a business called Keys Construction and his customers gave him rave reviews. He also began doing research on his computer. He stated that he began looking for small towns with little to no crime rate and he would study it. He would pay attention to how many roads came in and out of the towns, traffic trends, hotels, and so on. By the time he settled on where to go, the entire plan was in place. Then in April of 2009, it was time to execute his plan and Israel flew from Alaska to Chicago. He rented a car and began to drive east. Along the way, he decided to indulge in something he rarely ever did, a quote, spur of the moment action. Deborah Feldman was unfortunately the perfect victim. She was strung out on drugs, her family had all but disowned her, and she had turned to prostitution to pay for her habit. She was walking by herself down a New Jersey road. Now Israel was known to be in town at this time in a rental car as one of his kill kits was discovered nearby. He picked Deborah up and drove well past the city and it is likely that when she realized what was happening, she became terrified. He later admitted to driving hundreds of miles north with quote, a victim. He most likely restrained her and sexually assaulted her during the journey. He and his victim ended up at Tupper Lake in New York State. Then he donned gloves, sunglasses, a fake mustache and goatee, and a coat that he pulled the hood up over his head and he walked into a local bank. He robbed it calmly and he walked out with $10,000. He got back into his car and he drove on. Now how he killed Deborah is not known as he never told the entire story, but compared to what he did to the others they do know about, she was most likely strangled, dismembered, her body put into trash bags and dumped into the Tupper Lake. Her body has never been recovered. Keyes never fully admitted to killing her, but he certainly showed signs of recognition when they showed him a picture of her. He said, I don't want to talk about her. So then the next day, after killing Deborah, Israel traveled back down southward and stopped in Essex, Vermont. He got a room at the Handy Suites and he paid with cash for four nights. Once settled in, he went outside and he began walking around looking for a secluded place to hide another kill kit, which was buried in an orange Home Depot bucket. A few days later, he drove to New Hampshire. He boarded a flight for Alaska happy that the town and the tools were chosen and neatly hidden and in place. You see, this became his routine. 
He reveled in the thrill of the research, the timing, the traveling, the planning that he did, and even more so because he made sure it was completely at random. The authorities have no idea just how many people Israel Keys actually murdered, but they've been able to trace a good amount of his traveling and are still, to this day, comparing that to missing persons reports. Though it is still a very daunting task because he would travel for hundreds and hundreds of miles during these excursions. So two years later, Israel came full circle. In June 2011, two years after he had traveled there, he flew from Anchorage to Indiana, he got a rental car, he drove clear to New York to check on some land that he owned there, which was wild, unkempt, and had a dilapidated house on it with the roof caving in. Side note, he said he never disposed of any of his victims on his land because he owned it and that would be traceable, which makes sense. So after checking his land, he then left New York and drove back to Essex, Vermont. He dug up his kill kit and began watching the local neighborhoods. He said he didn't want to choose anyone with children. That was out of the question. So he settled on a middle-aged couple, Bill and Lorraine Couriers. He also noticed not far from the couple's home was a farmhouse that was for sale that was basically deserted. One night he walked to their house. He let himself into their garage. He looked around to make sure there were no things for children inside, such as, you know, bicycles and toys and so on. Satisfied, he broke the window on the door that connected the garage to the house and he let himself inside. Wearing a headlamp, he snuck through the house quickly. He awoke Bill and Lorraine and bound them. He then put them in their own car drove their car out of the garage, down the driveway, and to the farmhouse. Now he didn't give a lot of detail about their murder other than he ordered them at gunpoint down into the basement and Bill began to get belligerent. Israel was beginning to lose his always calm and controlled demeanor, which upset him, and he shot Bill several times. He had tied Lorraine up on a bed upstairs and he went up there and he raped her and then he strangled her with a zip tie. It is believed he then dismembered their bodies, put their parts in trash bags and left them in the basement. He attempted to set the house on fire but the fire didn't ignite. It had been raining in that area quite a bit and then he just calmly flew back home. Not long after the farmhouse was demolished, workers who were bulldozing it stated that they did detect a supremely foul odor coming from the basement, and one even said that he saw trash bags down there, but each thought that it was just simple trash and thought nothing of it. The remains of the couple as well as the house were taken to a local landfill, but their bodies were never discovered. So think about that, guys from inception to execution he took two years to do this this was how he said he handled nearly all of his murders can you imagine the self-control he must have had to be able to put this much thought and effort into planning every little detail and yet places and people were chosen at random his last known murder 
was his undoing. Out of the 10 plus years that he had been actively a serial killer, he had learned after admitting to killing people in Washington State while living there and realizing that that was a mistake not to do that around his local area. But he didn't stick to it. He had been sort of itching for that adrenaline rush. He later said that he craved the rush and then the subsequent sense of calm and peace after murdering. Only with each murder, that feeling was decreasing in both strength and duration. He wanted a quick fix, and whether it was that he had begun to feel like he would never be caught or what it was, he started hunting in his hometown of Anchorage. So Israel began his hunt. He started watching and observing the comings and goings of the Common Grounds coffee booth. Now this was a very small little trailer of sorts in a parking lot with a walk-up window. Now these are quite popular in Alaska. 18-year-old Samantha Koenig was working that night. She was beloved by all that knew her, and she was described as bright, bubbly, and had desperately wanted to work at that coffee booth, much to the apprehension of her father, who had raised her as a single parent. But he finally gave his blessing. He couldn't tell her no anymore. Also keep in mind, Anchorage in winter is unbelievably cold. It had been snowing a lot, and the pile of snow along the road that the highway crews scrape off of the roads was particularly high, making the little coffee shop all the more difficult to see from the road. On February 1st, 2012, now that's only seven years ago, folks, just before 8 p.m., near closing time, a man said, quote, Could I get an Americano, please? And it startled Samantha for just a moment. But she happily began making his drink and they chatted for a bit. As she handed him his coffee and told him the price, she looked toward the window and there was a gun in her face. If you are so inclined, there is security camera footage of this on YouTube if you're curious. Her fear is visually palpable when she realizes the danger. He demanded her to turn the lights off though it is believed that he wasn't actually aware of the security cameras. He then ordered her to crouch on the floor as he boasted calmly about how he'd killed before and what would happen to her if she tried to escape. To him, this is simply routine, and he liked that she complied. He made her empty the cash register till. Israel then told her to put on her coat as he pulled himself swiftly through the window inside the shop with her. He bound her wrists with zip ties and forced her out of the back of the shop. Unfortunately, she was too scared to push the installed panic button in the shop. He told her that she was to walk and act like they were a couple and that he was going to put his arm around her so if anyone saw them, they'd think nothing of it. Now, she did attempt to run from him, but he caught her nearly instantly stuck the gun into her ribcage and told her that if she did that again, she would not enjoy the outcome. So she gave in and complied. Later, he was asked, quote, since you were going on a cruise the next day, what were you planning to do with that person? And Israel grinned and said, quote, well, I wasn't going to bring her with me. 
Israel then put her in his truck. He used more zip ties to ensure she was safely subdued and proceeded to drive around for hours, even stopping for fuel at one point. Also at one point, Samantha fearfully tells him that she needs to use the restroom and he begrudgingly finds a remote place to pull over and let her relieve herself. All the while, he was telling her that he was going to only use her to get a ransom and then he'd let her go. So she relaxed ever so slightly, finding just that bit of hope in his promise. Around that time, her boyfriend went by the coffee shop to pick her up, but the place was dark and she wasn't there. He tried to text her repeatedly, but got no response. He then called her father and told him that she wasn't there, and her father said everything was probably fine. Give her time to respond to the text of, to the texts about where she was. Both of them could not have been more wrong. Eventually, around 2 a.m., Israel decided to risk it, and he drove home with Samantha laying in the back seat of his work truck. His girlfriend was still awake inside, but he had prepared his shed ahead of time for this very reason. He had left heaters running. He had a five-gallon bucket ready for her. He whisked Samantha out of the truck, and he hurried her into the shed. He subdued her in the shed and told her he had to go do some things to get the ransom demand ready and that she'd better not make a sound. Now she agreed, but he still blasted loud music just in case. After he returned home around 4 a.m., he went inside his house to find his girlfriend asleep. He poured himself a glass of wine and returned to the shed. Now this part's going to get a little graphic, so just a little disclaimer. Now when he got back in the shed, Samantha was exactly where he had left her. He then calmly ordered her to lay face down on the floor. He bound her hands with rope up above her head and screwed them into the wall in front of her. He secured her legs as well and he put a larger zip tie around her throat where all he had to do was pull it to tighten it. She begged, please don't rape me, to which he replied, you knew this was coming, and then he did. I'm not going to get into the gory details, it's in that book I told you about, but regardless, when he was done, he simply grabbed the zip tie, pulled it as hard as he could, and strangled her. He then turned the heaters off, he wrapped her up in a tarp, and put her inside of this long cabinet that he had in the shed. He then put two locks on the doors, went inside to call a cab that would take him to the airport to catch a flight down to New Orleans. He later stated that he smiled during the entire flight, feeling that deep sense of satisfaction after a fresh kill. He then boarded the cruise ship and was gone for two weeks. When he returned from New Orleans on February 11th, he rented a car and began driving over to Texas where he robbed a bank. He then stopped at a gas station and got a kick out of watching the police cars race by on the road in front of him, responding to the robbery. Finally, on February 18th, he returned his rental car, having put 3,000 miles on it in six days. What he did during that time, no one knows for sure. Israel caught a flight back home on February 18th and made it just in time to get his daughter ready for school. 
with his girlfriend at work, he had plenty of time to deal with the body that he had left in his shed 17 days prior. Now, if you remember, he had turned the heaters off, so her body was frozen completely solid. He took the time to thaw it out completely. He then violated her corpse one last time. He then devoted the next couple of days gathering supplies, like a Polaroid camera, fishing line, sewing needles, makeup, and he found a newspaper dated February 13th, and he bought it. He then went home and began trying to make Samantha look like she were still alive. And this is again kind of intense, guys. He took the fishing line and he sewed her eyelids open to make it look like she was awake and had to do many, many layers of foundation to hide what we all know was happening to her skin. He then held the newspaper in front of her, propped up her face, and snapped a photo. That Polaroid is but a Google image search away, and it is haunting, knowing what he did to create that picture. Israel then typed a ransom note asking for $30,000 to be put into Samantha's bank account because he had her wallet. He then attached the note and the photo onto a pole at a park. Now it was time to get rid of the body. In a very kind of, quote, Dexter-esque move, he put plastic all over the walls and the floor of his shed. He then began to dismember her body putting the remains into garbage bags. He actually triple-wrapped the bags, and he left them in his shed for a few more days. Israel then drove to a nearby lake. He set up a quick ice-fishing shack, took the bags inside, cut a hole through the three-foot-thick ice, and dropped her down into the lake. He then kicked back. He fished for a few hours, caught some fish, took them home and made a fish dinner for his daughter and girlfriend. Now getting restless, Israel began trying to use various ATMs with her debit card to withdraw money to see if the ransom had been paid, but he could only draw $500 out at a time. By early March, there was a hit on her ATM card in Houston, Texas at a bank across from the airport. Before he stopped at the ATM, he rented a white Ford Focus, which was visible on the ATM camera. In my opinion, that's a rookie move. I don't understand why he did that. But the FBI contacted Texas law enforcement to watch out for that car. Israel drove to another town in Texas for one of his sister's weddings, causing a scene just exclaiming how he did not believe in God or any organized religion. You see, his family always held out hope that he would come to his senses and return to the faith. He told his family, quote, You don't know what I've done. I have to drink every day to forget what I've done, unquote. After the wedding, he returned to his hotel room. The next day, he stepped out onto the balcony and saw a local police car driving slowly through the parking lot. But it drove away, and Israel didn't dwell on it but they were watching him. He later got in his car and began driving down the road and they pulled him over. The officer asked for his license, which Israel politely handed over. The name and the picture on the license matched that of the suspect in Alaska. 
The officer started questioning Israel and he became increasingly frustrated. He was a suspect because of the ATM card. Now finally he got Israel to get out of the car and put him in handcuffs. Inside the rental car were various tools. There was dye-stained money from the robbed bank, masks, and Samantha Koenig's debit card. He was arrested and questioned. The questioning lasted for some time. He gave the gory details about Samantha's murder along with the couple from Vermont, but he tried everything to control the entire situation. He stated that he would give them more information once they could assure him that his name wouldn't be splashed everywhere and that his daughter would not be greatly affected by his actions. He wanted to go straight to execution. When asked why, he said that there was no way that he would be able to spend a long period of time behind bars, that he was a wanderer by heart and would not be able to endure it. But he quickly saw that the bureaucracy of law enforcement and attorneys and the whole process was going to take a long time, as we all know that it does. So sometime overnight, on December 1st, 2012, he took a blade that he had taken out of a disposable razor and slit one of his wrists. He then laid face down and tied his bed sheet around his neck. He then fastened it around his ankle, and as he began to blank out from the blood loss, his leg became heavier and heavier, eventually choking him. He was so good at this that the medical examiner actually couldn't tell what had killed him, the blood loss or the strangulation. But he had committed suicide before officials could get anything else out of him. He was 34 years old. He did leave a suicide note, and the note said, and it's long, quote, where will you go, you clever little worm, if you bleed your host dry? Back in your ride, the night is still young, streetlights push back, the black, eye-neat rose. Off to the right, a graveyard appears, lines of stones, bodies molder below. Turn away quick, bob your head to the seat, as straight through that stop sign you roll, loaded truck with lights off, slams into you broadside your flesh smashed as metal explodes you may have been free you loved living your lie fate had its own scheme crushed like a bug you still die soon now you'll join those ranks of dead or your ashes the wind will soon blow family and friends will shed a few tears pretending it's off to heaven you go but the reality is you were just bones and meat and with your brain died also your soul send the dying to wait for their death in the comfort of retirement homes quietly quickly say quote it's for the best it's best for you so their fate you'll not know turn a blind eye back to the screen soak in your reality shows stand in front of your mirror and you preen in a plastic castle you call home land of the free land of the lie land of scheme americanize consume what you don't need stars you idolize pursue what you admit is a dream and it's american die get in your big car so you can get to work fast on roads made of dinosaur bones punch in on the clock and sit on your ass playing stupid ass games on your phone 
paper on your wall says you got smarts. The test that you took told you so, but you would still crawl like the vermin you are once your precious power grid's blown. Land of the free, land of the lie, land of the scheme, Americanize. Now that I have you held tight, I will tell you a story. Speak soft in your ear so you know that it's true. You're my love at first sight, and though you're scared to be near me, my words penetrate your thoughts now in an intimate prelude. I looked into your eyes. They were so dark, warm, and trusting, as though you had not a worry or care. The more guileless the game, the better potential to fill up the pools with your fear. Your face framed in dark curls like a portrait. The sun shone through highlights of red. What color, I wonder, and how straight will it turn, plastered back with the sweat of your blood? Your wet lips were a promise of a secret, unspoken, nervous laugh as it burst like a pulse of blood from your throat. There will be no more laughter here. I feel your body tense up, my hand now on your shoulder, your eyes. Forget the lady called Luck. She does not abide near me, for her powers don't extend to those who are dead. Then there's some parts that they couldn't really make out. And then he goes on to say, Would that I keep you, let you be the master of your own fate, knowing full well what's at stake. My petty captive butterfly, colorful wings, my hand smears. I somehow repaint them with punishment and tears. Violent metamorphosis, emerge my dark moth princess. I would come often and worship on the altar of your flesh. You shudder with revulsion and try to shrink far from me. I'll have you tied down and begging to become my Stockholm sweetie. Okay, talk is over. Words are placid and weak. Back it with action or it all comes off cheap. Watch close while I work now. Feel the electric shock of my touch. Open your trembling flower or your petals I crush. Unquote. Wow. Now, there is tons of footage of his police interviews on the internet that you can go listen to, but it is quite clear that he was glib and unfeeling when it came to his victims. He often chuckled when talking about his actions, quote, the things I've done. I don't feel bad about them, he said to investigators. He said that due to his religious upbringing and how ridiculous it all seemed, was some of the motivation for his murders. He thought that if God allowed all of the pain and suffering in the world, including what he inflicted on innocent people himself, then there must be no God. He said it was not a question of why, but why not? Unlike most serial killers, he did not have a victim profile. That is to say, he didn't single out any one particular kind of person, and he chose his victims at random. And Israel was extremely smart. He also studied other serial killers, and he claimed to admire Ted Bundy. And he said that Dennis Rader was a wuss for saying that he regretted killing. Israel was happy when the interviews asked him if he was familiar with Robert Hansen, who's a famous serial killer in Alaska that I've actually already done a podcast on if you want to go back and listen. And Israel responded that yes, he was quite familiar with Robert Hansen. According to psychologists, Keyes fits into the category of conduct disorder, which is sometimes known as childhood psychopathy. 
This label is given to kids and teens that display a lot of troubling antisocial behaviors. Animal torture and murder is on the list of behaviors which Israel did do. And because they don't have a sense of empathy like the rest of us do, then the pain and suffering the animal is experiencing doesn't even register. But once the act is completed, the child or teen will get a great sense of power and exhilaration, the adrenaline rush that Israel was always chasing, and that reinforces and rewards the behavior. And this leads to a sort of addiction. The more they do it, the less it satisfies, and the need to do it again in a shorter span of time increases. As the teen grows into an adult and is a clinical psychopath, the already low impulse control is made worse as they become sexual beings, like during puberty it changes from animals to humans. Now throw in violent sexual fantasies and you have a recipe for disaster. There was also a study done in 2001 published in the Journal of Neurology, Neurosurgery, and Psychiatry that showed a correlation with alcohol consumption and frontal lobe shrinkage, and we already know Israel was a heavy drinker. There is a correlation between alcoholism and personality disorders. So what about his family after his death? Well, his mother and four of his sisters had his funeral in Washington State and had him buried in an undisclosed place. The rest of the family didn't attend. His family, but in particular his mother, continued year after year to convince her son to come back to the church to repent and denounce his atheism. The pastor of the family's church said, quote, He is not in a better place. He is in a place of eternal torment. Israel rejected the gospel, and thus the outcome of his life is this tragic story. Unquote. His family continues to live in a cult-like state away from society and were deeply, profoundly religious. So we listen to stories like Israel's and we are horrified. We think him a monster and we would be right. But then we go on to watch movies like John Wick, which I absolutely love, by the way. And we cheer him on, knowing full well that prior to his acts of revenge on behalf of his dog and so on, he was a hitman. He was a paid, traveling, stealthy serial killer. So where do we draw the line? Is it because we all know that the movie isn't real and that... I mean, who doesn't hold a special place in their hearts for, for Keanu Reeves? I mean, really. Most of Israel Keyes' story will remain a mystery because he killed himself before he could tell us what he knew. So what do you think? Leave me a comment on Instagram, at serial underscore killing, or YouTube, under the name of this podcast. You can visit my website at serialkilling.squarespace.com and also consider sponsoring the podcast. It takes many, many hours and a lot of work to gather this info. And thank you so, so much for listening. I appreciate every one of you, as I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me. Thanks, and have a great day. Music by Kevin MacLeod on Incompetech.com.